with that faithful nod, I'm on stage. <clears throat> so, so. <laughs> it's wonderful to see you all soften, even in a couple of days' time. It's noticeable. I hope it's noticeable from within. I hope it's feels you feel it. I feel you, the, the growing gentleness, the growing tenderness. If you don't feel that, then you're probably operating from the wrong organ. You're operating too much from a should or a must or a have to. It's the wrong organ. This is the organ in charge for this week and hopefully thereafter. So life should be, uh, we should be more permeable. Hmm? This is, I'm just showing you how, what the effect of the retreat is. And many of you begrudge the effects, but that's what we do. <laughs> you'll start feeling, <clears throat> you start feeling more. You start feeling your emotions will start running. The waters of your emotions will start moving. You'll feel them. And because we have been on guard to that for most of our life, we make stories out of that. But it's not really about the stories. It's about the de-icing of, of a layer of ourselves that needs to flow, needs to move. So that feels like tenderness. It feels like you're alive again, like you're coming out of a, a deep hibernation. That's what it can feel like to you. And I hope that you grow into the magnificence of that feeling. And a growing quiet. It touches the very cells of your body. Tonight I want to talk about <clears throat> radical accountability. I fancy myself an amateur scientist. Real scientists would laugh even at the word amateur. <laughs> but I really love certain aspects of science that take me into the mystery of how life is put together. And so I read things that I can't possibly understand. And one of the one of the things I read about is quantum mechanics. Because it doesn't make sense. It's things appear and disappear almost at will. They can be two one thing can be in two places at the same time. Things can, you can't know where a, a particular object is. You can only have a, s- a certain idea of its potential, where it might be. If that's not the mystery speaking to us, to a delight. And that's at the microscopic level, the microscopic level, full of mystery, of unknowing, of seen, seemingly 
unexplainable occurrences. And then when we get to the microscope or the macro level, it smooths out, doesn't it? Seemingly, the world is very predictable, very known to us. A lot of assurance that you aren't going to disappear in front of my eyes. A lot of predictability, a lot of accountability. You know, when, as we practice, uh, many times on prolonged retreats, people have the experience of that microscopic quantum mechanics of being. They, we, each of us have the potential of breaking through the macro certainty to a reality that's very unformed, very happenstance, feels almost like the floor under you is crumbling. In fact, that is how many people describe those experiences. What's happening from my perspective is that the mind is getting quiet. There isn't so much thought overlay onto the world, which smooths everything out, which makes everything certain. And as we allow ourselves to get quiet, that uncertainty begins to manifest, often frightening the yogi, often having almost an existential anxiety about what reality really is as we begin to interface with it in a more exact way. But then when we come out of that particular microscopic view in retreat, it smooths all out again. So we need not fear. It comes back into place. I know you, and I know myself, and I know the objects within the field of my attention. In fact, even in the midst of that experience, you still know who you are and all the objects around you. It doesn't make us senile, or it doesn't make us, it doesn't cripple us so that we can't tie our shoes. But I find it very interesting that we could have both of these realities coexist. Because what happens with thought, and I just want to talk a little bit, my, I really want us to understand the problem. If we don't fully understand the problem that we're facing, <clears throat> then we're, we sort of grasp at the straws of the strategies we use to correct that problem. And what we do in order to smooth the world out is create a barrier, to create a boundary in which the certainty of what I know about the world is how I then look at the world, which when that boundary is crossed isn't so certain at all. But within the safety of my knowing the safety of my thinking, 
Everything is completely smooth and predictable and assured. Now, that's not a problem. In fact, that's something we want to happen. As an organism, we have to be able to function in the world. And if you functioned in the world from the quantum mechanics of it, you would go nowhere. You would know nothing, and it would all be chaotic. So it's not as if this thinking things into plays is itself a problem. In fact, it's needed as an organism. The problem is that when we create a boundary in order to know the world, then there automatically arises within that boundary formation, at the moment of that boundary formation, someone who is certain about it. That arises simultaneously. In fact, they're one in the same event. You can't have a boundary without also having the person who is secure within it. Now, that in itself isn't a problem either because if the boundary is needed and if the person arises simultaneously with the boundary, then that's a given to have the world be be able to navigate within the world, we must then have a person available to navigate the world. No problem. Where does the problem arise? The problem arises in not knowing the dependency of how that certain person arises within the world from boundary formation but thinking that person into a kind of steady-state theory, having a sense of that personhood that has created the boundary as an entity in and of itself separate from reality. Now, that was not the point of the organism, was not to separate itself off from reality and pretend that it's distant to it, and then try to navigate through reality as two things, the reality and myself. But that's the outcome of what most of our lives have led, because when we were young, that's how we had to form in relationship to the world to make it understandable. And then along with that rose me and you. Now, what happens is that each time we form a boundary with the world, we cut some part of our aliveness off from ourself because the boundary is an attempt to be safe through the description we offer reality to assure that it is safe. Fair enough. But, Whenever we do that, whenever we create a boundary, we then have a limitation, some rub, some resistance. And Narayan mentioned last night, she said, the totality of the Eightfold Path of the Four Noble Truths really comes down to resistance and non-resistance. Boundary formation is created through resistance, through not wanting a particular form of reality or 
wanting a particular form of reality to be smooth and predictable. What happens, though, is that from this sense of wanting the predictable comes the person who is afraid of the unpredictable. And then a whole story of tale and woe begins to spin itself around the person who is a fictional, imaginative, representative representative within the world, created through trying to make the world predictable. For certainty's sake. But the more we spend the tale of our woe, the tale of our existence, the more we create more resistance to different aspects of ourselves, although it's an imaginative self, created from the essential boundary that we laid down to begin with, we start creating further and further fundamental blocks within this imaginative person where we don't like this and we do like that and we want this and we fear that. We don't like certain parts of ourselves. And each time we create a new boundary, we create a new resistance, we create more pain for ourselves because we are cutting ourselves off more and more from part of our aliveness. We're blocking ourselves out. That pain is the pain that the Buddha points to and his fundamental truth about being an organism within reality. And all of Dharma practice, all of all spiritual practice, points in releasing the need for those boundaries. The problem is not with reality. It never has been. It's been with our resistance and our need for assurance within it. Though those are two very different problems. If the problem is with reality, there's no fix in it. But if the problem is in what I'm doing to reality, moment after moment, in order to be safe within it, there's a lot of fixing I can do. But that fixing doesn't require more resistance. It doesn't require more angst or we will create further resistances to the reality that we're trying to cross over and join once again. It requires just the opposite. It requires relaxation, releasing the tension that we have already formed with reality. It it requires gentleness of heart and kindness of being. Intentionless living. And so our instructions are really geared towards that end. They're geared towards releasing resistance, not creating further avoidance. And as we do, a funny thing starts happening. We start feeling happier because parts of ourselves that have up until this point been cut off or sectioned away are rejoined. We start feeling more alive. We start feeling more complete, 
more whole, more total, more relaxed, more content. All the things you would expect to happen if you were releasing stress. Another funny thing happens is that our mind, which is the only organ that can create the resistance, starts getting quieter when we move towards relaxing that resistance. It becomes less employable. Because the mind is the organ of protection. And therefore, as we begin to relax ourselves more and more, it becomes quieter because the need to converse, which is the formation of resistance, isn't there. Lo and behold, a different organism, excuse me, a different organ can come out only when the mind is quiet. And that's the organ of the heart. And that's why feeling affected, feeling gentle, and soft, and available, and tender, and sensitive, has to accompany true spiritual growth. So don't begrudge it, my friends. Don't begrudge it. In fact, be joyful about it. Because you know you're on the right path. when you start feeling life rub up against you intimately. And don't look to spend further woe. Don't take your emotions, which are the result of life coming forth from you, and create further resistances with further stories that spin off more and more boundaries and borders to section you off further from your life. We don't have to do that. We can go the other way. You see, as we create less and less boundaries between ourselves and the world, what does the world feel like from inside the organism, inside awareness, as those boundaries are released? It feels like interconnectedness. It feels like we're connected. So, the less resistance, the more connection there'll be. The more relaxed, the more connection there'll be. The less we emit thoughts about things, the more connected we'll be within the world. And this deep sense of knowing our rightful place within that interconnection, not that self-doubt that comes from our isolated sense of ourselves, but that deep resonant of knowing our place in life and of life and with life is what comes forth. Interconnection. 
So what we have to do to interconnect is connect. How do we connect? Mindfulness. Mindfulness is the mechanism for connection. It allows us to begin to reverse the process of boundary formation. Because boundary formation is created from not seeing the harmlessness of what we're afraid of. In order for us to release anything, we have to see that it's essentially harmless. And when we do see it, awareness touching that feared object, we then see that we don't need to hold the boundary and can release it. And so it's through insight, awareness of, that we are willing to relax, not through talking ourselves into relaxation. Now I want to bring radical accountability. But before I do, I want to issue a warning. Because some of you, and I don't know who of you I'm speaking to now, but some of you have very tortured histories in which this concept, radical accountability, will not fit. Not until you have worked through some of the difficult, scarred areas of your childhood. Because what I'm suggesting now is so radical that it can be upsetting to those of you who believe strongly and rightfully that you were abused and that it was their fault. Because radical accountability finds no fault. In order for us to come to the place where we are not blaming life. Many of us have to do a lot of psychological work so that we are no longer angry at life. But for those of you who have done that work, and for those of you who haven't, just listen as an an indication of where All life will progress at some point. And that is the unwillingness to point fingers or blame at all toward anything. I mean, radical accountability is I pain myself. I anger myself. I ache my back. Okay, you get it? What we're doing is hermetically sealing off the chamber here. There's no leakage across the borders externally because there's no external. That's a boundary formation conceived to protect ourselves. And so to blame whatever is on this side of the boundary we don't like for that activity outside of ourselves is to further harden the boundary between ourselves and all of life. You see? So now, for those of you who feel ready, and again, you have to decide that, 
this term, radical accountability, don't pretend that it isn't. This is radical accountability, where no projection is externalized. How strong are we here? Do you see? How annoyed have we been throughout the day because of the person sitting next to us making noise or breathing? Or <laughs> You can't believe the multiple notes we get <laughs> about each of you, our inability to be accountable. Where do we think that emotion is coming from? Who has it? You make me angry? That's why we fight wars. With that rationale, you make me angry. All I have to do is get rid of you to get rid of my anger. And that's done very nicely in this day and age in the 21st century through war. Or through negation or dismissal or all other forms of self-destruction. But to say, to totally own one's life. Now I'm going to show you how, I'm going to show you two things. To, I'm going to show you how this cannot be denied. Like you say, okay, well that sounds good, but I don't believe it necessarily. <laughs> well, I'm going to show you irreversibly how you cannot stop, you have to believe it. After tonight's talk, <laughs> you're stuck. The first thing I want to show you is how projection works. That there's something in us we don't like, a feeling that we're having about someone. And because the feeling is so difficult to own and be accountable to, we project it out. That's why we say, you make me angry. But in other forms of disguise, all of prejudice comes from that as well. All forms of hatred of irritation, of annoyance. Because part of ourselves is being cut off and a boundary is being formed and shoved externally. And that trait, whatever it is that we don't like in ourselves, is given to a species, a culture, a gender, a person. And then very safely, because that boundary is now secure, I can hate you without having to hate myself. The problem with that is that Symptoms are formed from it. Hatred is a symptom. Judgment is a symptom of having done just that. But instead of looking at the disease, we go out and we keep trying to Correct the symptom. The symptom isn't going to correct itself. I don't care. You can say judging, judging, judging. From now until you die, you're still going to judge. Even in your sane judgment, you probably have a judgment. Until we own and be radical, radically accountable. Let me look. Let me feel it in myself. This emotion, this feeling that I feel about the others, it's coming in me. It's in me. It's in this mind and body. It's not there. It's here. Let it be here and dealt with here.
Now, some people misconstrue this entirely, and they stay in abusive relationships, and every time they're hit, they say, oh, yes, it's my pain. I'm painting myself. You can do all kinds of ignorant and irrational and unskillful things using this as your excuse. I'm talking about sanity here. If you're abused, you get out of it. Okay? Now, others of us, when we hear about radical accountability and not blaming, will say, yes, it's not. See, we're, we have this disposition, most of us. It's not you. You're right. It's all me. <laughs> We love that one because that assures a firmer boundary of self. That affirms of our boundary that we've already created. The boundary of our own self-agony, of our own torturous sense of me. No. This is not about... This is not about self-decoration. This is not about adding further... Self-hatred, further disgust, self-disgust. There's no one you can blame. There's no blame for having an emotion. There's no blame for having an emotion. Either way, externally, internally, no blame. It's arising from many causes. Listen, please. The fact is that there are multiple causes to every every event. It's a winter like it's a very warm winter. You don't have to have lived here very long before you sense that there's something wrong here. I can show you on the map how certain you know, highs and lows are merging over this area to, and that can give you a certain explanation of why the weather is the way it is. But we also know that there are multiple causes to why the weather or these weather patterns are existing at all. And many of them have to do with each one of us, don't they? How we work the world and how we use the resources within it. And you begin to see that the weather has multiple causes. It has six billion causes. And mi- In fact, the whole world is its cause. Who are you going to pick out of that when it's all center? Who are you going to label? Who are you going to pick out? And just the same way the person sitting next to you is moving in a certain way, that movement has multiple causes. Why do we land on one single person called you? That is, in Buddhism, dependent arising. All things are caused by all things. It's all acting on and co-influencing everything. So you begin to see that it's a mistake. And you can get a feeling for that, even intellectually. It's a mistake to label anything as the cause. Would we be in Iraq now if we didn't have the desire and want for gasoline? Mm -hmm. 
Should we blame the Iraqi people who are suffering incredibly because of our desire system? Or pick one person out like Saddam Hussein for the reason that we invaded the country? Unlikely. Now, too, I want to show you a different thing. I want to show you something, and for you to look at it as closely as you can. Because when it's perceived, you'll really understand radical accountability. It so happens that the neurological pathway for memory, for recognition and memory, is exactly the same neurological pathway as perception. In other words, you can't stimulate the brain and have just perception without recognition and memory. They arise together, the same neurological pathway. Look around. What we perceive is what we also recognize. Now, that's very interesting. Because if that were a given, though it may be neurologically a given, it is not a given or we would have no hope in being able to discern the difference and therefore we would not be able to ever be free. But remember why resistance is formed at all, to create security. We want the recognition as much as we want the perception because the recognition gives us safety. I know you. I know about you. I know what to be afraid of you or how to work with you. You're a known person to me. And therefore, my perception of you also carries that knowing. And therefore, there's a certain way that I can navigate you in security. With security, not in security. With security. But meditation try, it starts to wedge those two apart. Now that's very important for radical accountability because we're not going to change either one. We're not trying to. But we want to know the difference between each one. We want to know where, what perception is when it's not confiscated by recognition. So listen, you are now at the end of the sitting. What does that represent? You see, how much of your attention goes to the sound as a perception, what the ear hears, and how much goes to, oh, thank God. (laughs) I can now relax. Most of it goes to the other. Or a different, when you are five or ten minutes out from the beginning of a sitting and you hear the bell, a different recognition factor comes in. Still the bell is missed. But now I've got to hurry and get done with my brushing my teeth so I can get to the sitting or whatever that form of busyness that the bell seems to recognize. My suggestion is to really listen to the bell. 
pause. Give it credibility. Give the perception credibility. The perception is not coming from the mind. It's coming from the senses before the mind confiscates it with recognition. Your busyness comes from the mind's recognition of the perception. Those are two events. One is internal, total, derived from you. That's the recognition. Recognition can't possibly come from anything else. It comes from the derivation. It's derived from the mind. And recognition is our world of reactivity, not the perception. The perception just is. It is neutral. It carries no balance, no charge whatsoever. So you see that everything we add to perception is induced by mind. Now we have to be totally accountable to that. We can't blame somebody else for our mental recognition of an event. How can we do that? And our reaction and our sense of being upset or irritation and all the other things because it's totally ours. It's totally the product of mind. So now we can see that and be done with it. But you have to take the time to start deciphering the difference between those two very separate yet very entangled events. Perception and recognition, perception and memory. Or you'll never give life any innocence. You'll never cross the boundary that recognition tries to establish. You'll never allow life in to be fresh and new because it will be old and known from recognition. It will never be a mystery. It will never invite a response of the heart because it's totally mind-driven. And you'll never be quiet because recognition won't allow you to be quiet. It spins off not only its tale of memory and recognition, but your survival and all the things about you within that recognition. Each time we recognize, we come into being around that recognition factor. Our whole life is formed around a single event. Now, how do we listen to the sound? You see, your heart comes out when we aren't killing it with words. Your heart will come out, and that's how you'll know. You'll know your innocence because your heart will come out. And everything will call forth your heart. Everything will beckon you forth. So don't use the we care together as a way to harden our position to things. 
And let your heart come out. I have a series of things I'd like to suggest as ways to do that. The most important, the most important, and this, it seems like a series of steps, and I don't really mean it to be because that makes it too much of a production. But just listen to it all because it all really flows into the same thing. The first thing is to have a correct orientation to experience it all. As Narayan was pointing out last night, we have lost ourselves within experience. All of life is an experience. It can be nothing else but an experience. It's a taste, a smell, a touch, a feel, a thought, a a sound. That's all it ever has been and all it ever will be. And we bring so much other baggage to something that's so light, so airy, so feather-like. The way we do that is because we weigh in with memory on each experience, on whether we want more of that or less of that, or whether it means nothing to us. So to have the correct orientation to experience begins to reverse this process. And that correct orientation is to see each experience for what it is. To allow each thing in, just as it is. And it's helpful and has been helpful for me when you start letting it in like that and the mind starts percolating forth its recognition factor, even its most subtle perceptions, to say not to, not to, not T-W-O, not to. And further we can relax within that experience to reconnect with it in a more intimate and sensitive way. Don't turn away. Our life depends upon opening to each and everything. And if there's an emotion, then let that be part of the experience of intimacy. But if there is a story that starts associating itself with that experience, Question it. This is true. Or it's just my mind spinning its tail of the past, having nothing to do with the perception, the innocence of the perception. Can I just let it in? Am I safe within this? Is the experience itself fearful? Is it really? Is it so terrible? Is it really? Is this true? And if we find ourselves dividing ourselves out, reacting to it, look for the pain inside of ourselves, not excuses externally for why we must turn away. But look for the pain, the tortured part of ourselves that feels like it's life, it's self-life, not shelf life. But self-life is at stake in feeling this experience. And so we are radically accountable to ourselves. 
not with self-blame, but with self-understanding. Okay, I can feel this. With kindness, with gentleness, with open-heartedness. We use the means. We use the ends of interconnection as the means of our practice. Relaxing, allowing, accepting, connecting. beauty of using the methods in the right direction, in the right orientation, knowing what the problem is and how to correct that problem in ourself because our reactivity, our logic, our habit goes completely counter to this. That's why we have to hear it so frequently and practice it so regularly in order to change those habits, to walk out of those habit patterns, to see life free of those habits. In innocence, we discover innocence. With heart, we discover the heart. May all beings. Can we sit for a minute or two? Recognition, memory, perception. Thank you.